0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I would uh, like to start off this show by thanking Stephen Valentino for sitting in for me as host of Radio Parallax last week. Mr. Valentino normally hosts... Stop Making Sense here on KDVS and uh, filled in ably for me, I'm told, as I was confident that he would. Um, Yours truly was down in Nicaragua a week ago, and uh, hopefully uh, during this hour I can relate some of the adventures I got into. First stop uh, had been Costa Rica, and well, I'll tell you about it later on uh, in this segment. But I would like to thank uh, Stephen Valentino and also Heather Klinger, who uh, rendered some assistance to us uh, in uh, in the last couple of programs, as well, of course, all of the people who volunteer their time to keep this community-based radio station on the air week after week. Yay! In our second segment today, we're going to be joined by Russell Ash, the author of The Top Ten of Everything 2007, These books uh, are now in their 18th uh, annual year of printing, updated, of course, uh, every 12 months. And uh, this promises to be a most fascinating talk with Mr. Ash, so do stay tuned for that in our second segment today. Let us uh, commence the program as we like to do with on this date in history, which in today's case is December 21st. On December 21st in 1846... The first surgical operation under anesthesia in Great Britain was performed at University College Hospital in London for a leg amputation. How the art of anesthesia became uh, became a fact of life in the 1840s is a story we've been pondering bringing you uh, and plan to do so in the year to come. Hopefully we will be joined by Dr. Roger Orman, himself an anesthesiologist, to go over the really interesting tale of how we managed to get put to sleep and thus avoid what uh, previously had been, uh, you know, the nightmarish experience of surgery. Mr. McMillan, can we have some uh, musical accompaniment for uh, the next item?
1: while you work mm-hmm. Come on, get mark you knock and start to whistle while you work
0: in fact, it was on December 21st, 1937, that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs debuted. The American film created by Walt Disney's animation company was the first feature-length animated movie. It became a classic, of course, and box office receipts recouped the film's cost of 1.5 million by the end of its do, first year in circulation. And on this date in 1989, hard-line communist Romanian president Nicolae Ceaușescu was visibly stunned as listeners began booing his speech. The next day, the Romanian army defected to the demonstrators and Ceaușescu and his wife fled the capital in a helicopter only to be captured by the armed forces. And it was a year ago, tomorrow, on December 22nd, that in 1972, an earthquake in Managua, Nicaragua killed more than 12,000 people. Later, President Anastasio Somoza was rightfully accused of diverting millions of dollars in foreign aid, which led to a revolution in 1979. This brought the Sandinistas to party in Nicaragua. First among equals, Daniel Ortega uh, is, in fact going to become the president of Nicaragua again next month. But, uh, but we'll have more to about, say about that a little bit later. We have the following now sent to us by Sharon. A husband had just finished reading a book titled, You Can Be the Man of Your House. He then stormed into the kitchen, walked up to his wife, put a finger in her face and said, From now on, I am the man of this house, and my word is law. So you will prepare me a gourmet meal tonight. When I'm finished, you'll serve a sumptuous dessert. After dinner, you're going to go upstairs with me and we will have all the sex that I want. Then you'll draw my bath, wash my back, and towel me dry. Then you're going to bring me a robe and massage my feet and hands. And after that's done, guess who's going to dress me and comb my hair? The wife looked at him and said, My guess would be... The Funeral Director. Thank you, Sharon. And that is, of course, our joke of the day. Our quote of the day is as follows. In practical terms, paperless voting cannot be made secure. That was the view of the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, which uh, two weeks ago issued a white paper urging the federal government to adopt electoral technology that provides, quote, a paper summary of each ballot which voters review and election officials save for recounts, end quote. We're thankful for the fact that the mainstream media has finally decided to run with this story. We and Brad Friedman and Black Box Voting and a few uh, other people out there that have, uh, you know, haven't shut up about this, uh, beginning to wonder if people were going to catch on to this. But we note happily that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution noted that uh, in Democratic-leading Sarasota County, Florida, More than 18,000 votes in the congressional race were just not recorded, handing a victory to GOP candidate Vern Buchanan by 369 votes. This and other items prompted the New York Times to note in an editorial, but one vote is already in. Electronic voting without the full array of protections, including a voter-verified paper trail, is unacceptable, unquote. And uh, while the example in Sarasota County may have been, uh, you know, the, the most egregious in the country, it was noted that Randy Wooten of Waldenburg, Arkansas, uh, may, may have in his own way got even more screwed than the Sarasota Democratic candidate Christine Jennings. Apparently, Randy Wooten went in to vote in a small town, well, admittedly, well, a very small town, population of 80. But in the race, in the mayoral race, In uh, Waldenburg, uh, Randy was one of the candidates. He voted for himself. (laughs) And his wife, Roxanne, swears she did too. Which led to Wooten demanding an explanation for how the e-voting machine in Waldenburg, Arkansas, made by the same company as the Florida machines, managed to award him a grand total of zero votes in the three-way race. Noted Fred Grimm in the Miami Herald, For the Wootons, the only consolation is that machines awarded Wooten no votes rather than one. If that had happened, said Roxanne, I probably would be divorced by now. We will, of course, continue to follow this story uh, for you, along with many of the other public affairs hosts here on KDVS. Our statistic of the day comes from the Associated Press Ipsos poll. It notes that 63% of Americans do not believe a stable democratic government will be established in Iraq. To which we say, duh. The same poll noted that Americans' dissatisfaction with President Bush's handling of Iraq has hit an all time high of 71%. Well, this has caused our media correspondent Gary Chu to wonder in numerous emails who are these other 29%? These people apparently think things are going just fine over in Iraq. All right, let's do the good the bad, and the ugly. Last week was evidently a good week for everyone under 30, after a new Danish study of 400,000 people found no connection between cell phone use and brain cancer. A couple weeks ago, it was conversely a bad week for the war on drugs after the World Chess Federation announced that at this week's Asian Games, players must, for the first time, submit to drug testing. (laughs) Puzzled chess officials admitted they didn't know which drugs to test for. Said one, I would not know which drug could possibly help a chess player improve his game. Radio Parallax's suspicion would be directed in the general direction of amphetamines, but uh, we're not sure. And finally, according to the Week magazine, last week was an ugly week for cover-ups. After a female passenger on an American Airlines flight evidently had an episode of flatulence and lit several matches to hide the smell. Alarmed passengers reported a sharp burning odor, and the flight made an emergency landing in Nashville. At this point, all 99 passengers were searched and interrogated by the FBI. And, uh, boy, we gotta say, we would not want to have been in that woman's shoes when she finally had to say, Okay, here's what happened. Anyway that's the good the bad and the ugly all right let's do some uh, let's do some looking back here right about the time um, yours truly left a few weeks back uh, OJ Simpson's um, book. And uh, media appearance had been canceled. One quote I had missed uh, from Mr. Simpson was that, uh, uh, when asked about the book titled "If I Did It," uh, said O.J. "It's all blood money, and unfortunately, I had to join the jackals." If, if even O.J. Simpson is admitting it's blood money, isn't that admitting that he's guilty? Christopher Hitchens, writing in the Wall Street Journal, noted that the original title of the book was supposed to be, if I did it, here's how it happened. Noted Hitchens, that second clause is a declarative statement, a straightforward confession to double murder. Suggested Hitchens, should any future psychopaths attempt this type of shameless non-confession confession, the proper formulation is, if I had done it, here's how I would have. Clarence Page, writing in the Chicago Tribune, uh, offering an opinion we don't understand, suggested that this book may have been a chance to undo some of the damage the Simpson trial did to race relations in this country, noting that despite overwhelming evidence of his guilt, many black people cheered when O.J. Simpson was acquitted by a mostly black jury. Reportedly, bootleg copies of If I Did It are available on eBay for upwards of $65,000. And in a follow-up of our story a few weeks back about the Bush twins cavorting in uh, Argentina, it was revealed that last week that amid a flurry of embarrassing headlines, the U.S. Embassy in Argentina strongly suggested that the president's twin daughters, Jenna and Barbara Bush, leave the country, (laughs) as reported by abcnews.com. This request came after Barbara Bush had her pocketbook and cell phone stolen, a Secret Service agent was mugged, And a tabloid reported that the young women ran naked through the halls of their hotel, which the hotel has denied. Officials said the Bush twins had become a security risk, but uh, Jenna and Barbara, who were in Buenos Aires to celebrate their 25th birthdays, refused to cut their trip short. Clearly, these girls know how to party like Daddy. I noted a couple of uh, brief letters in the International Herald Tribune regarding the death of General Augusto Pinochet, the former dictator who ruled Chile, wrote Emily Blake from Paris, I am appalled that your front-page obituary of Augusto Pinochet made no mention of U.S. involvement in the coup that brought him to power. And wrote Eric Brill from Rancho Palos Verdes, California, Augusto Pinochet was a major villain of our era. Now it's time to focus on another one who was also a chief fermenter of the Chilean coup and many other interventions worldwide, Henry Kissinger. And in the past few weeks, Jimmy Carter has come under fire for his, uh, his new book titled Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. As various Israeli lobbyists have compared the book to Mein Kampf because of its use of apartheid in the title, Uh, Sherry Muser in the Amman Jordan Times wrote, These Israeli howls of outrage only prove Carter's point. that It is simply unacceptable for an American statesman to speak the truth about Israel. When asked by MSNBC if he agonized about the word apartheid, Carter responded, I didn't agonize because I knew that's an accurate description of what's going on in Palestine. I would say that the plight of the Palestinians now, the confiscation of their land, That they're being suppressed completely against voicing their disapproval of what's happening the building of the wall that intrudes deep within their territory the complete separation of israelis from the palestinians all of those things in many ways are worse than some of the aspects of apartheid in south africa there's no doubt about it and no one can go there and visit the different cities in palestine without agreeing with what i have said and for the record, this correspondent, who was in South Africa in the very last days of apartheid and has passed through the West Bank-occupied territories in, uh, in Palestine, uh, well, I, I think Mr. Carter has hit the nail on the head. Said Carter in the Los Angeles Times, I wrote this book simply because Americans never hear the Palestinian position. Thanks to the extraordinary lobbying efforts of Israel's friends in Washington, we have a culture in which to even discuss this complex issue is to invite charges of anti-Semitism and woe unto any politician who dares to criticize the actions of the Israeli government. In this, uh, in this area, we'd like to refer you to the excellent Sacramento News and Review article by our friend R.V. Scheid, who was commenting upon a protest of about 100 people for the uh, apparently national meeting of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which took place in the Radisson here on December 3rd. Wrote R.V., There is arguably no doubt that such a public display of anti-Israel sentiment might not have occurred without the publication of The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy earlier this year. The highly controversial academic paper written by the University of Chicago's John Mearsheimer and Harvard's Stephen Walt provided validation to critics who have been decrying the supposed influence of the lobby for years. The article notes that in the preface to the report, the professors wrote, other special interests have managed to skew U.S. foreign policy in directions they favored, but no lobby has managed to divert U.S. foreign policy as far from what American national interests would otherwise suggest, while simultaneously convincing Americans that U.S. and Israeli interests are identical. Anyway, we would uh, suggest that you read the whole article, which I'm sure is available online for the Sacramento News and Review. I want to also thank the Sacramento News and Review for the mention uh, it gave in the Bites column to our interview with Rita Malouf, a UC Davis student who was in Lebanon at the time of the Israeli attack uh, during the summer. Rita was brought to us uh, courtesy of the article in the SNNR by R.V. Scheid about what happened to her. And, uh, you know, we're happy to collaborate with that excellent newspaper. And, yes, Rita will be back uh, in the first of next year, uh, we hope as well and a final item in this general area we note that uh, happily the Knesset Israel Torah Center which was destroyed in an act of hatred seven years ago reopened Sunday wrote Pamela Martinow in the B in a moving rededication ceremony the temple that was firebombed opened its new stone synagogue temple members and volunteers from the community, community at large constructed the building most of the labor was donated Noted the B, Jews and non-Jews worked side-by-side constructing the temple. Sometimes people came by on weekends as early as 6 a.m. Most donated their labor or charged a fee well below the market rate. A local men's group calling itself Those Magnificent Guys helped immensely with the project. Some of our regular contributors uh, on this program are members of Knesset Israel Torah Center, and uh, we congratulate them on... Getting things back to normal. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and in a moment, we'll be joined from London, England, by Russell Ashe to talk about the top 10 of everything 2007. Russell Ashe has degrees in anthropology and geography. This year, he's produced the Top Ten of Everything 2007, just as he has done annually for the past 18 years. Russell Ashe has contributed to over 100 successful titles, including Incredible Comparisons and Great Wonders of the World. He is regularly featured on radio and television in the U.K. and the U.S., where he's appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show. He joins us now from London, England. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Russell Ashe. Hi, how are you? Mr. Ash, I'd like to note that a few years back, my brother-in-law got a copy of your book for Christmas, and I spent a large part of Christmas Eve rummaging through its pages.
1: Uh, Oh, I'm delighted to hear it.
0: Yes. We're a non-commercial station, so I can't directly suggest to listeners they need to run out and buy a copy for Christmas uh, for a gift, but I would mention in passing that a lot of people like myself do enjoy your books, and 18 years of publishing success shows I'm not alone. Thank you. Your book has, uh, has 10 categories, starting with the universe and earth and ending with sports. Um, do you have a favorite category?
1: I'm always pretty amazed by the ones that to do with uh, anything to do with money. Um, not that I'm a mercenary person, but I just love these, these lists, of, as, as everybody does, of, of wealthiest people, multi-billionaires. But I'm also fascinated by what they do with their money because we have lists of the highest prices paid for works of art, but also things like photographs, where you can now spend uh, $2.9 million on one photo or um, $171,600 on a teddy bear and that kind of thing. I think is just sort of extraordinary. And what happens in doing a book like the top 10 of everything for 18 years is you see these prices just steadily going up and crazier and crazier prices being paid. Good luck to them. I don't want to buy any of these things, but I'm really fascinated with what other people do with all their wealth.
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned that, because I had the book open to the page of artists with most works sold for over $1 million. Pablo Picasso has sold 298 works for over a million?
1: I know, it's just staggering, isn't it? I mean, the the, the annoying thing with these things is that not that many years ago, um, and I don't think I could have afforded one, but I could have thought, I could have dreamed that I could have afforded one. Now, I can't remotely afford one. There's too many other people out there. It's like, you know, authors always say about books. There's too many other books, or books by other people. There's too many other people who've got far more money than I have.
0: Well, the world is constantly changing. Uh, What among your lists are the toughest things to track?
1: Um, Well, there are some that are simply impossible to do um, full stop. I mean, we we, uh, can't ever do a list of the 10 most common names in the world because we imagine that they'd all be chinese and the chinese simply don't publish that sort of information uh, it's impossible to do a list of the uh the 10 biggest robberies that have ever taken place because they'd be things like um, security and safe deposit boxes and that kind of thing where the information is just never made available right but even allowing for the fact that the things that we can't do um actually, if anything, things have got easier to, to do over the years and things have got quicker to do. Um, when I started doing top 10 of everything 18 years ago, of course, we didn't have the internet. Um, we didn't have email communication with people. Um, now, I using uh, various uh, databases, I can tap into on a daily basis and update things like uh, highest earning movie list, that kind of thing. Uh, with email contact, I can communicate all around the world with various consultants and what's happened over the period I've been doing the top of everything is I've built up a kind of network of uh, experts and specialists in everything under the sun. Uh, I've got people around the world who who know more than anyone else about poisonous snakes and tall buildings and uh, roller coasters and just name it. I've got somebody out there who's who's the leading authority on it, who feeds the information into me and updates it, which is absolutely fantastic because it would be impossible personally to to keep hacking and updating just tens of thousands of lists, which is what my database now consists of.
0: Well, a lot of the lists are, are very topical. Uh, I'd like to start with the very first uh, list in the book because uh, there was a big controversy this year over Pluto's demotion. But your very first list in the book notes that even the planet Mercury is not in the top ten largest objects in our solar system.
1: Doesn't Which... quite make it, no. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we we have to monitor things like the you know this whole question about whether Pluto gets demoted and whether you know planet, there's a planet X and all that sort of thing. We have to take account of of scientific developments and, and new discoveries. I mean, even a list that you in this general area of physical geography and the universe, even a list like the tallest mountains you would think would be pretty much the same year in and year out but of course what happens is that they develop um, new techniques for measuring a mountain which are much more accurate and so even the height of everest which was fixed for years is suddenly measured and is a little taller than we thought it was
0: <laughs> i just noticed you've added a foot yeah <laughs> Well, your, your list of the, uh, for example, the world's largest lakes. is a sad sort of entry. What had once been the number four entry on the list, the Aral Sea between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, now is completely dropped off your your top ten.
1: Yeah, that's a, it's an environmental disaster, and there's, there's ships kind of sitting in the middle of a desert now because the sea has just dried up. It's all the water that fed the lake. It's a sort of inland sea and was once vast, uh, as you say, once in the top ten and in, in the world. Uh, All the the rivers have been diverted to irrigate the the surrounding agricultural land, and as a result, uh, there's this just sort of muddy puddle in the
0: middle. In that same list, though, you did something I noticed that no one else has done. I want to ask you what led to your decision. You've combined Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, which in your list comes in number two behind the Caspian Sea. What led to combining the two? I've never seen anyone do
1: that. You have to respond to what ge- geographers, and as you said at the, in the, at the outset, I have a, a degree in geography, although yes. I have to say it was a long time ago, but geographers, every now and again, change the rules on how you measure things, um, so we get the, the length of the Nile and the length of the Amazon altering according to whether you measure various tributaries and that kind of thing. And the uh, latest opinion, and I can only bow to it, is that the, the t- they're considered two lobes of the same lake. Who am I to argue? <laughs>
0: Well, I guess there's no locks. I guess you can sail from one to the other, so why aren't they one big lake?
1: I, I don't know. You could say the same about, okay, we could keep following every small tributary and every stream that feeds into a large river and say that um, the, the Missouri is six times as long as we thought it was. Well, you can't do that. You've got to sort of stop somewhere, and I, think, I guess there's, there's some, some uh, raison d'etre behind this.
0: Russell, I admit, I, I'm intrigued with the geographical parts, parts of the book. Quite a few surprises in there. You note that uh, on your list of, well, in an era of global warming, this is kind of an alarming one, you had um, the countries with the lowest elevations. And the, and, and the winner in that was the Maldive Islands with the, the, the height of 7.8 feet is their highest point in the whole archipelago.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid the problem there, of course, is they're going to be the first to go as the, as the sea level rises and, um, uh, you know, all these very low-lying countries, if they happen to also be in a, in a tsunami zone, um, I'm afraid they're, just, they're going to get flooded. And uh, sadly, with the, um, the 2004 tsunami, that's exactly what happened.
0: I Also surprised to see that uh, Sacramento made at least one of your lists. It tied for eighth with Flagstaff, Arizona. Sunniest places in the U.S. 78% sun. I didn't realize we were quite so uh, sunbaked.
1: Um, yep, you're you're very lucky. As I sit here in uh, <laughs> in rather gloomy UK at the moment, you're very lucky to have such a sunny place.
0: <laughs> a lot of your a lot of your lists, are, I, I think, are, must must get you involved in some arguments. What one came to mind? I noticed that uh, you even made m- mention of that fact in your list of the least intelligent and most intelligent dog breed. And, and heading those respective lists, smart, smart dogs, border collies, dumb dogs, Afghan hounds.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid I, I, I don't think I ever want to go to a, a sort of kennel club show um, <laughs> where, where somebody's going to attack me for saying that their, their dog is dumb. Um, this is a, a particular dog specialist's research where he's, he's got them to learn various tasks and remember things and um, do a sort of whole range of kind of IQ tests as a result of which they've been kind of ranked like this. Um, I don't think I want to uh, put my, my head on the block on this one, but uh, you know, if uh, you know, people have got Afghans and they're regarded as the, the least intelligent or they've got uh, Border Collies and they're regarded as the most intelligent, I'm sure that um, they, each, each of them think that they have the most intelligent dog in the world.
0: Well, Russell, my, my uncle used to have an Afghan hound, and my gut reaction tells you you're right in being the dumb dog. <laughs>
1: I've met lo- actually I've met lots of people who um, who who own dogs from either category, the most or the least intelligent. Who interestingly either break down into oh my dog is the most brilliant, he, he can read my mind, or to oh this dog is just so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: no, know, one thing people may take some com- comfort in, I guess your list of shark attacks noted. There's a world uh, world resource on that for the number of attacks since like the 1600s, and the stats really aren't that bad. It doesn't seem like.
1: They're not, they're not too bad. Um, I still, there's certain places I don't think I'd like to, to swim um, without a steel cage around me, but, um, you know, certain parts of the Australian coast and so on. I mean, hardly a week goes by without you reading about some poor kid who's had his leg bitten off or something. But, but no, and isn't, isn't it extraordinary that the, um, the, these uh, figures should have been collated since the 16th century? Right.
0: One, one particularly depressing statistics I know for our listeners here would be, uh, and this one really caught my eye, Top 10 calorie consumers in the world, coming in number one, USA, 3,774 per day, which is about 1,000 calories more than we need.
1: It's well over what you need, especially if you're not taking any exercise either. Um, I um, I was once in Ireland, and we Ireland also features very prominently in the, in the list of calorie consumers, and I went into a pub for some, and ordered some lunch, and I ordered a lasagna, and the, uh, the barman said, and would you like some potatoes and some rice with your lasagna? And I said, well, no, I was just hoping for a small salad or something. He said, oh, I don't think we can manage that. And I mentioned it on a, on a TV show that I was doing that evening. And the guy, the presenter on that, without blinking, just said, you're lucky they didn't offer you cannelloni and macaroni with your lasagna. They do like their calories in, uh, in Ireland.
0: Yes. Well, I noticed Portugal was was number two in the list, and as a Portuguese American, that's got to give me pause. Both both lists, both, <laughs> both entries. Um, you talked about a hard time tracking names around the world. I noted that in the U.S., one percent of all surnames are Smith, which which is really yep. astounding.
1: Um, a very similar figure in the, in the U.K. In fact, um, since we we. I think we sent them all over to you, but um, <laughs> oh, the was sort of breeding colony of Smiths who came over to the States. Um, that's a very interesting one. I mean, we, in the UK, for example, um, that list would not have changed for many, many years. Um, but now, because of um, uh, immigrant communities, we now have very prominently in, in such a list, we would have the, name, the surname Patel, which yeah. would not have appeared years ago. Sure. Um, just, you know, and so even things you think of, of as fixed, I mean, Christian names, first names, change all the time because of name fashions. But surnames you'd think would not change much from generation to generation, but indeed they do uh, through, through um, immigration.
0: And I always thought that Jones was the number two name, but for our listeners we should point out, actually, if you're a Jones, you're tied with Brown at number four, with Johnson second and Williams third.
1: I'm, I'm particularly interested in the names. I'm actually do, working on a names book at the moment as a, as a separate enterprise, and I'm, I'm really very... Very fascinated by the, the the sort of range and change of, of names around, particularly uh, in in English-speaking countries. I think it's a fascinating subject.
0: Well, your book does have quite a few, I guess you'd call them sidebars, things of interest you included besides just the list. I was quite tickled by one uh, one you included, which was H. L. Mencken's collection of odd personal names.
1: They're Some- particularly lovely. I, I, I I'm he. he he dug out, for his book on the American language, he dug out names like Oscar Apathy and Barnum Bobo and Christian Girl and George Goatleg. I think mean, these are just great. I, 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 just, I just absolutely love people. I mean, the, I love the idea, which I often find in my research, is that um, somebody who's he's been given one of these um, extremely strange names then has a child and gives them exactly the same name. It's almost right. like saying, well, I've, I've had to live with it, now you can.
0: Yeah, it's a, like a boy named Sue or... <laughs>
1: Well, there are plenty of them. I've, I've, uh, I've found girls named Reginald. Um, I mean, there's some very strange ones around like that. Transgender names, very common. And also um, this thing called nominative determinism, where uh, somebody has a particular name. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're called um, Smith, and they actually work as a blacksmith. So that kind of thing happens a lot. People seem to be directed into a profession by having a particularly strange name or a particular name that relates to that profession.
0: Well, for the record, my favorite among the Minkins collection was Anson B. Outhouse, worthy of a W.C. Fields movie.
1: <laughs> I, I know. It's just, it's just beyond belief. And I, I mean, it, it, you sometimes look at these and you don't believe them, and then you check them out, and they turn out to be utterly true. And in fact, in the course of looking, verifying um, them, you actually find even stranger ones. Well,
0: it looks like sometime in the last 18 years, uh, you've had to change the countries of the world, something that would seem fairly fixed. But Kazakhstan now comes in at number nine uh, also tops your list of the world's uh, largest landlocked countries so i guess that the breakup of the soviet union certainly uh... changed things around
1: uh, it did it um, uh, yes uh, kazakhstan is also the large, largest landlocked country Um are actually rather rather interestingly there's um... The, there's a number of countries that are sort of doubly landlocked they're landlocked countries within another country that's also landlocked they, they have absolutely no sea access whatsoever um, now, the, the breakup of the Soviet Union was interesting because it did, did actually create a whole, a whole new um, range of countries, many of which none of us had ever heard of before. I mean, who really knew that there was a country called, called Uzbekistan before? These were, but now you discover that these places not only are large, uh, but they also have much more oil and than, than, than natural gas than any, any of us imagined. Right. Um, and they're actually places that have ex- astonishing wealth as a result.
0: Well, speaking of astonishing, one of the entries in your book that really grabbed me uh, was top 10 largest defense budgets. The USA came in number one with $465 billion, but per your list, it's clearly more than the next nine entries combined.
1: It's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, China is, is, is second, but it's it's a fraction of, of your budget. It is quite extraordinary. I I mean, I'm i particularly interested in the, I mean, obviously America dominates a number of these lists, and you know, for good or bad, um, it dominates the, the defense budget list. It also dominates the, the list of number of people in prison. You have over two million people in jail, and uh, I've been watching over the 18 years I've been doing the Top 10 Everything, I've been watching the, the the rise, the sort of inexorable rise in number of prisoners in the USA. And I think there's going to come a point where every single person in the States is in jail because it it increases annually at a huge rate. Uh, You also have, unfortunately, far more gun murders than anyone else in the world. Um, You have over 9,000 a year. Uh, In the UK, we we very rarely have more than 70. Um, So that's a fantastic difference, even allowing for the fact that you have five times our population. You have a staggering uh, rate of uh, murder and uh, crime in the States which probably then accounts for the two million people in jail.
0: Yeah. There's so many surprises in your book. I, I wanted to, to note a few of them, but I just... Uh, the list is too long, I think, for the time we have left. But I just mentioned a couple of them, maybe. Um, top ten spoken languages in the world. I always thought English was number two on your list. It appears that Spanish is now a, a surged ahead in the number two position. That's new, isn't it? Yeah,
1: with... with- Mandarin or Chinese at number one, and interestingly i don't know whether this is happening in the states but um, uh, there's a move afoot in the u k now to um, make the, the learning Chinese compulsory in schools and, uh, there it's a, it started by a few private schools here but it's going to carry on and in, in, in go into the uh, in, into the state schools um, I think everybody has a, an eye to the future with uh, china 's sort of rapid economic growth and so on um, learning Chinese is just going to be one of those important things.
0: Uh, another one, uh, best-selling books were quite quite amazing. I don't think anyone would be surprised to note the Bible has sold 6 billion copies since Gutenberg comes in at number one. And maybe not so surprised at number two was the quotations of Chairman Mao, which they printed, I guess, almost a billion copies of. But really got, what got me was the number three on your list, Lord of the Rings, at 100 million sold
1: yeah um it was only when the when the Lord of the Rings films came out that they started to make an assessment of just how many they they 'd sold and I think even the publishers were astonished to discover just just how massive it had been over the years and obviously received a huge boost when uh, when the when the three movies came out um, interestingly though the the, the you mentioned at uh, number two the quotations from the works of Tung, Zetung. Um, the, I don't know whether it should be regarded as a bestseller. It's in the list, but it, um, of course it was compulsory for every Chinese citizen to own a copy. Sure. Um, you, you actually <laughs> got arrested if you didn't have one. So um, it was. Uh, I think uh, you know any any of us could have a bestseller if you made it compulsory to buy one.
0: <laughs> well, uh, R- Russell, what stat surprises you the most? Maybe out of among, among these many, is there one that stands out to you?
1: I, I find some that are just just sort of amusing, like um, the uh, the countries where sheep, most outnumber people, for example, um, where, you know, there's 10, 10 sheep per person in New Zealand, and but only 0.02 or a 50th of a sheep per person in the U.S., so you only get a lamb chop each, and, uh, you know, some <laughs> countries get 10 sheep per person, or countries where, you know, the, the even strange things like the, uh, the, the top fruit crops, which, strangely enough, the, the, some people, um, is headed by tomatoes, because most people don't think of the tomato as a fruit. it's Botanically, is a fruit. And 125 million tons of tomatoes are grown every year. And then in the book, in the top 10 of everything, we show an an illustration of people going berserk with tomatoes, because there's a festival that happens in Spain, the Tomatina Festival, where they just throw around several tons of tomatoes. And we have a picture of people just sort of bathing in a sea of tomatoes. It's quite extraordinary. So both in the illustrations and in the content of the book, we have some pretty weird stuff.
0: Yes, and I, I, I'm quite amused by things like your fact that, uh, that, that the Oscars since the 19, 1950, uh, if you have an Oscar, you've got to sell it back to the Academy. You or your heirs for $1. Yeah,
1: it's, um, it's one of the, the, the stipulations when you're presented with one, you're not allowed to, to, it's not allowed to be sold on the open market anymore. Huh. Um, which is r- rather tragic for people who are, you know, former Oscar winners who are down on their luck and want to sell it. All they're going to get is a buck, which is not really very much, considering all that effort you put into earning it.
0: Yes. Well, final question, Russell. What can a listener do? I'm sure some of our uh, folks out there have their hearts set on making a future edition of how do They Get Into Your Book?
1: Uh, well, one way, I mean, we actually give some, some pointers in in the book, if you get hold of a copy of The Top ten and Everything. Um, you could, uh, as you were just mentioning Oscars, you could actually become an a- actor, and if you get nominated for, for six Oscars, you'll be in a couple of lists, um, uh, especially if you win one before your 21st birthday, because not many people have managed to do that. Or you could um, make about 12, 20 films that earn about $3.7 billion, which is what the James Bond series has, has done, so it's, it's made a pile of money. Or you could um, you could drive a car at over 763 miles an hour. That would get you into a list of the of the land speed record holders. Or you could be, become a king or a queen and rule for more than 59 years. That would get you into a list. You see how hard it is to get into these lists.
0: Yes, but but worthy goals, all of them.
1: I think it's worth a go. Or you could win win eight Olympic medals. That's going to that's coming up. Of course, you can go to Beijing, in uh, in 2008, or come to England, come to London in 2012, and. Uh, and win eight, eight medals, and you'll be in, straight into one of my lists.
0: The book is The Top Ten of Everything 2007. We've been speaking with author Russell Ashe in London. Mr. Ashe, thank you very much for speaking with us.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. Uh, in our third segment, I guess I'd better do what I didn't do in the first segment, which is tell you a little bit about what happened down in Central America. Oh, and one bit of a uh, segue I can add to our last segment uh, with, with Russell Ashe is that one of his lists was the top 10 world coffee producers, and I was startled to see that after Brazil, the number one position, no surprise, came Vietnam, which I found very surprising. I am not a coffee aficionado, but uh, I did note that my uh, traveling companion uh, is, and he thought that uh, the coffee in Costa Rica was just superb. want to talk just a little bit about Costa Rica because uh, it's considered to be one of the great travel locations uh, of the world right now, and it's hard not to like Costa Rica. In fact, I'd say if you know anyone who's gone to Costa Rica and not had a great time, you know, send us an email at info at radioparallax.com because I've looked pretty hard and I think I can state that no normal person can go to Costa Rica and not have a great time. Although one caveat, if you decide to go down to the Osa Peninsula down near the Panamanian border, which is one of the last I think it is the last great stretch of, of protected uh, rainforest in Central America. Uh, you better take along some industrial-strength insect repellent. Both Gordon and I looked as though we had a case of the measles after spending four days in the rainforest. It does appear that in four days, we each amassed somewhere between one and 2,000 insect bites. But I don't know any place else uh, you can go and hike and see troops of monkeys having a rumble right above you. It was something out of uh, Jane Goodall. I mean, at one point, a uh, Capuchin monkey band uh, was having some internal strife. Evidently, a young male was trying to pal around or join the group, and he was being driven off by some of the other males. The, uh, the young monkey looked down at us, the interlopers, the uh, the humans, and decided to use us as cover. He swung through the trees and got re- just a few feet away from us, banking on the fact that his uh, his tormentors would not chase him right up to the Homo sapiens. Anyway, it seemed to have worked. Uh, he was hanging out next to us, screeching and yelling, and, uh, and the other guys decided, well, you know, we don't want to get that close to those smelly humans. But it was funny, they quickly adapted to us being around and went about their business, which in the case of the Capuchin monkey seemed to involve turning over every dead leaf to look for grubs and insects, which they just did methodically. One female alternated between holding her baby and cracking open a coconut, which she'd pulled off uh, off the shore. That was pretty funny, watching this monkey banging the half-coconut shell, uh, trying to extract more of the meat out of it, uh, with success, evidently. We also saw spider monkeys, which tend to hang out higher up in the tree, although they were occupying pretty much the same territory, just eating, uh, they are both eating berries, I noticed, on one particular tree. these spiders are kind of quiet and very long-legged, hence the name spider monkey. My favorite probably was the capuchins, but I did enjoy the sounds of the howler. A few days after visiting Corcovado, we took a river uh, estuary trip um, uh, in the northern part of the country where there was an, a number of howler monkeys. And after practicing, I got down the howler call pretty close. And no, I'm not going to do it in the microphone, but because <laughs> it requires you yelling really loud. Although Mr. McMillan's looking very disappointed is going to prevail on me to try it. Well, we'll see. Anyway, later on the trip... Uh, in Nicaragua, we're passing through the rainforest on this volcano in uh, in Lake Nicaragua, and I decided just to give it a try to see if there are any howlers around. And by God, there were! We smoked a couple of them out that were only like about 150 feet away. And, oh God! All right, l- let me give it a try. This is this is what it sounds like. <laughs> That That is only an approximation, but it was good enough to fool a howler monkey, so, so I guess it was, you know, good enough. Anyway, for the second year in a row, I was able to witness, uh, you know, volcanic explosions and hot lava rolling down the side of uh, the Arunal volcano in the north of the country. And then a day later, come out of the mountains and go for a swim on the Pacific coast. Uh... Unfortunately, real estate developers are down there in a big way. And I watched at the, uh, at the Valero Hotel where we were staying on Hermosa Beach by Playa del Coco, Costa Rica, as numerous Americans were walking around on their cell phones saying things like, this is a gated community. You're able to have a homeowners association. you got to think about what you want to do down here. We've got a new golf course going in. About this point, I was, I was searching for some polonium 210. To make a long story short, Costa Rica, very nice, recommended highly. I uh, hope you may be able to get down there and check it out, dear listener. Uh, Nicaragua is, uh, is is less on the, the tourist circuit these days, especially since uh, Daniel Ortega has been elected to uh, take the reins um, come next month. The U.S. government spent a lot of money to try and get rid of the Sandinista left-wing uh, government of Nicaragua in the 1980s. After Ronald Reagan at one point uh, referred to the fact that the Sandinistas were only two days' march from McAllen, Texas. Perhaps being somewhat geographically challenged, uh, Ronald Reagan maybe didn't realize this required marching through Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and the entire length of Mexico before you could arrive at the Rio Grande. My my friend Gordon was reading this book titled "Blood of Brothers." by Stephen Kinzer, which told uh, the entire story of Nicaragua, how it was we supported uh, the Somoza's uh, FDR uh, famously said in, in the 1940s, yeah, Somoza's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. The book is now on my uh, to-read list, uh, particularly when Gordon revealed that uh, evidently when um, Bill Casey, CIA head, was being grilled by Congress about the need to overthrow this government, he kept referring to the name of the country as Nicaragua, which prompted one senator to ask, how can you overthrow the government there if you can't even pronounce the name of the country? One depressing thing about Nicaragua is the uh, utter lack of garbage pickup. Uh, the, the town of Granada seems to smell like burning plastic, and, uh, <laughs> and next week's burning plastic seems to be strewn about you know, every square foot of the city. Gordon at one point stopped to take a picture of a garbage can, having not seen one for many days. But the people of both countries really couldn't have been nicer. And I got really used to eating fresh food. The beef down there is raised on grass, not, uh, not, not you know, shoveled full of corn. I started reading Michael Pollan's book while down there, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and regret very much that I missed his appearance here at UCD on the 29th of November. Well, Michael Pollan is on our short lists of, of guests, desired guests for this program, and we hope to bring them to you in 2007. One thing I am swearing off after my trip to Central America is Coca-Cola. I've enjoyed drinking it for years, but down there, they still make the stuff using cane sugar, and this high-fructose corn syrup sweetened garbage that uh, they're purveying up here in, uh, in California is just not drinkable. So it appears I'm going to let go of my one vice. Anyway, Costa Rica recommended highly. That's a no-brainer. But I also recommend Nicaragua very highly. The roads are very good. We rented a car, drove about, and really had no problems getting around. In fact, the Pan American Highway, which we drove from Leon in the north of Nicaragua down to the border, is in much better shape than it is in Costa Rica. Things, of course, could change uh, with the advent of the new Daniel Ortega presidency in, in 2007, but we don't think so. No one down there you know, seemed terribly worried about the prospect of, of uh, Ortega Part 2. So our guess is it's going to be a nice place to visit for a long time. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left, so all the science stories I've been piling up, all the other miscellaneous stories I've been piling up, are just going to have to go by the wayside. We will try and uh, catch up next week with that, as we do our, our annual look back at the end of the year, primarily at uh, some of the people who left us during the year and some of the notable events of 2006. All right, let's do a let's do a few obituaries here. Uh, all three from the entertainment uh, industry. We'll leave uh, for next week to talk about Augusto Pinochet and the late, great Milton Friedman. I'd like to note as we go out today the passing of Joe Barbera, one half of the Hanna-Barbera animation team that produced such beloved cartoon characters as Tom and Jerry, Yogi Bear, the Jetsons, and the Flintstones!
1: Flintstones.
0: Joe uh, Barbera and Bill Hanna first found success creating the highly successful Tom and Jerry cartoons, which um, which uh, I've never got. I've, I've never understood why people enjoy this, uh, these, these, this cat and mouse which blow each other up, burn each other up, but do all these torturous things to one another without any dialogue. I was astonished to read in the obituary for, for, for Mr. Barbera that the Tom and Jerry cartoons won seven Academy Awards. was a much bigger fan of the Flintstones as a kid, which I fondly remember watching uh, my sister and I watching over uh, my grandparents' house. It was, I, I believe, the first animated uh, program to be given a primetime slot. It used to air on Friday nights back, uh, back in the 60s. Like uh, The Simpsons, uh, decades later, the Flintstones found success in primetime TV by not limiting its reach to children. We also note the passing of Chris Hayward, a television writer who developed the klutzy cartoon character Dudley Do-Right and helped imbue the rest of the Rocky and Bullwinkle gang with the same sense of silliness and satire. Bullwinkle and friends came out of the Sunset Boulevard studios of Jay Ward, who warned against underestimating viewers and encouraged his writers to take pot shots at everything, Mr. Hayward once said. Hayward's writing partner, Alan Burns, noted that his philosophy was, just write sharp stuff for yourself and the audience will get it. It was very freeing. Chris Hayward won an Emmy for his, uh, his writing on, on television, which included work on Get Smart and Barney Miller. And finally, we note the passing of actor Peter Boyle, who left the life of a monk to study acting and went on to become one of the most successful character actors of his time in films like The Candidate, Monster's Ball, and our favorite, Young Frankenstein, where he plays the monster. Peter Boyle finished his, uh, his career on the what we think was unwatchable TV sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. But we'll always love Peter Boyle for his memorable impression in Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein in which he played the bumbling monster brought to life by the addled grandson of the original Dr. Frankenstein played by Gene Wilder. Favorite scene in the movie: the, the the takeoff on the original Frankenstein, where the where Doctor Frankenstein unveils his monster to a crowd who is horrified by this beast that's uh, this this patched together human who's been reanimated by Frankenstein, who I believe in the original breaks his chains and moves out into the audience. Well, in the Young Frankenstein parody, Doctor Frankenstein comes out in top hat and tails to introduce the monster. When they then do a duet to "Putting on the Ritz." Very memorable moment in film history. Anyway, to Peter Boyle, to Chris Hayward, and to to Joseph Barbera, we'd like to thank you for the efforts you've made over the years to entertain us. It appears we are out of time. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, which is produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Our thanks to Russell Ash, who joined us from London for today's program and is the first time we know of that we have shared a guest with Oprah Winfrey. Oh, and one final addendum before I go. I would like to note that as a biological sciences major here at UC Davis back in the 70s, I first heard about this creature, which I did witness in the flesh for the first time in Costa Rica two weeks ago. It's a small, lightweight lizard that's capable of getting some motion going and literally tiptoeing across the surface of a small body of water. The natives call it the Jesus Christ Lizard.
1: High hats and arrow collars, white spats and lots of dollars, spending every dime for a wonderful time. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits, putting on the ritz? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, and a cutaway perfect fits. Putting on the ritz, dress up like a million dollar trooper, trying hard to look like Gary Cooper. Come, let's mix where Rockefeller's walk with sticks or umbrellas in their mitts. Putting on the ritz.